0: You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery Series, Episode 119. It's almost tax season. I invited David Wilcox on here. He is a licensed tax consultant. He has lots of tips for anyone who has a private practice or a coaching business or any self-employed income. He has a lot of information on tax structure, tips and tricks, and things you shouldn't forget. A disclaimer that neither one of us is a lawyer so always make sure to have your own lawyer and accountant take a look at your books speaking of lawyer amanda hill and i paired for the 90-day notice if you're in a toxic job or laid off go to 90daynotice.com for more welcome surgeons residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon while we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back, I have a great guest today. This is David Wilcox. He is an IRS licensed enrolled agent a license, licensed tax consultant, MBA, and a certified treasury professional. And I want to tell you, I know what none of these things are. He's going to tell us first what all of that means before we start talking about all the things that you need to know in general of tips from starting a business, running it, the tips at the end of the year for taxes, and also retirement. So it's going to be a nice general overview of some of the things you should be considering. So David, welcome to the show and tell us what all those things mean. <laughs>
1: Certainly, thanks, Amy. Thanks for uh, having me on. I'm, yeah, it, 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 I'm always excited to share these things with uh, an audience, and hopefully, it's helpful for people because I know it's it basically tax and finance are a general area of confusion. At least people that people come to us, we have to dispel some misconceptions and also just are looking for guidance because there's a lot of information, but it's hard to apply. I'm in IRS. I'm an enrolled agent, which is an IRS tax designation. I'm also in the state of Oregon, which regulates tax preparers. I'm a licensed tax consultant here, which just a uh, detail. You have to have your own tax firm. I also have an MBA. I studied my MBA in, at the University of Barcelona in Spain. That was quite an experience. I lived for Spain for three years, um, wow. about 20 years ago. And I was the first North American to do that particular program. And yeah, that was just, we had to learn the language. And having gone through business school here in undergraduate at Colorado State University. Uh, A lot of it was repetition, but a lot of it was also the first year or so of MBA. If you've been in business school is you could almost sleep through, I think, in the States because you've already gone through it in undergraduate. But I got to learn the language, learn the vocabulary. And uh, then the second year is fascinating. It's I guess probably what MBA school is really about. And then I'm a certified treasury professional. When I was a treasury manager for some time, and it's just a designation that they do and don't do a whole lot with it anymore, but it has to do with financing and managing banking relationships, managing financing relationships. And so I worked in real estate. I started my career in working for a a place that bought mobile home parks and fixed them up and rented them for higher amounts. It was uh, maybe a little distasteful, but I spent about seven years doing that. And then after business school moved to Oregon and it worked, unfortunately I worked with a lot of nonprofits here, a couple, two or three large ones. And that's the nonprofit industry is pretty big in Oregon. So I got a lot of experience there. And then in 2000, I decided to start getting into my own practice of tax preparation, because what well, tax is fascinating if, if you're into math puzzles and helping people, it's really a fascinating, fun way to, to help people get to know people. And I started that by buying into a CPA firm. So I um, was working with some old partners and about one to two years into it, the second year, it we started to have some real divergences in Things like what technology platforms to use, how to bill, that's things that you're going to have in a partnership. But that so we decided to split off, and that's how NumberCraft came to be. So I'm the the owner of a NumberCraft LLC, and we do about a third of tax preparation, a third of what I call bookkeeping. A lot of people just call it accounting, and a third of payroll services is about where our day to day business runs. And we serve about, I'd say, about 250. 240 to 250 clients here in the area, and do about 300 tax returns a year. It's myself as the practitioner, and I have three people helping me on the technical side of that. So that's our background, what we do here.
0: I know your website is numbercraft.tax. So yes. tell us a little bit about it. I saw like looking at your website, it sounds like the very first place to start and people that may be interested in this may be someone who's starting either a private practice or a side business, things like that. So take us through a little bit about what it's like to set up a business. What are some of the things that that you really want to think of ahead of time before you start?
1: Certainly. I'd say before you start, there's about three things that you'd want to have in mind and probably the very first thing is do you have the passion for what you're doing starting a business is it sounds great with the dream of a lot of people in practice it's very tough it's a lot of a lot of extra hours that maybe you're not accustomed to spending if, especially if you're coming from being employed by somebody else and it really can be 2 to 3 years almost no matter what you do this seems to be i almost uniform some people hit it out of the park first year and everything's great, but really the first two to three years are are going to be tough. You're going to have a lot of tax surprises, operational surprises, just things that maybe when you're employed, you you didn't have to deal with directly. Your passion for what you do is the thing that's going to get you through those difficulties and ultimately make you come out the other side better, stronger, and hopefully financially more well-off, Again, the freedom that you envisioned when you first stepped into it.
0: And I know the first place to start when you're doing a business is choosing the entity that you would work for, because I know that there's a ton of tax implications for that. So what are some of the uh, entities that you see and how do we start structuring this business?
1: The, the next thing you want to do is some business planning. And part of that is your entity structure. So the most popular entity structure that you have, most people have probably heard is called the LLC or limited liability company or corporation depends on the state statute. But it's the general idea of that. And that to disclaim, I'm not an attorney here. So don't take this as uh, legal advice at all. But it's generally speaking, you with an LLC, you get the advantages of a partnership, which or sole proprietorship, which are basically, uh, you pass through tax treatment, unless you elect otherwise, we'll talk about that in a little while. But The the other advantage is you get the liability protection of a corporation that if you were just to be a partnership in a partnership or sole proprietorship before the law, you may not have. Now, as I understand, and again, the the people in the medical profession can uh, correct me and probably know this better than I, but you don't get a lot of benefit from setting up a a corporate corporation or a limited liability company because a lot of the liability is actually personal liability anyway. That's what I understand in my reading. So a lot of this legal liability may but might have some derivative benefits probably for the core of your business. I as I understand it probably doesn't quite you're going to accomplish that through malpractice insurance. Uh, so your entity structure choice is a little different than the average person on the in other industries.
0: But I completely so, agree with you. Yeah sorry of in order I completely agree with you. I know that when it comes to the, your business structure, LLC, the limited liability corporation is a good way to do that. For like for a coach, my coaching business is an LLC, but if I were to open a medical practice, it would need to be PLLC. And I think that does depend on the state. Right. Neither one of us are lawyers, so between the two of us we're still not a lawyer. So <laughs> <laughs> I think it's always worth it to get legal representation of this too. But the other options are like an S corp or a C corp which add a lot more difficulties i think when it comes to the tax structure of this potential for being double taxed and things like that too i know that this is probably beyond a lot of the things that we do but what what are some of the things you want to tell people about that a- aspect
1: yeah so there the irs recognizes there's four basic entity structures the irs recognizes there and the irs and how you're registered with the state the irs business structure and the state how you're registered are two completely separate things so that's the first thing to understand a lot of people conflate those two because they're intertwined to some extent but and one follows the other but you're gonna organize your business with the Secretary of State or wherever you are practicing or wherever you want to have your business but we as a tax advisors we just advise people if they're starting they're not sure usually it's something they won't know just form an LLC form form your LLC if it's just you single member, If you have partners, talk to a lawyer, figure out how you want to structure that, get something in writing. If it's just yourself, it's still helpful to have things in writing. If you have partners who, even if they're spouses, it's absolutely critical to get the business arrangement in writing somehow, something on paper, because you'll fight, you'll have disagreements as you go on in in business and you you just have, for everybody's protection, not just yours, but your partner's, you'll want to have a written agreement that's you want to make these decisions, but then you want to probably work with an attorney and either in register that LLC. Now, once you have the LLC, it's a common misconception to just jump to the LLC is this, that, and the other, the IRS actually doesn't have an LLC tax structure. There's no tax code for an LLC. They have a corporate tax code. They have an individual tax code and they have a partnership tax code. And now in the corporate tax code, they also have what's called the S corporation. So if you don't tell the IRS anything different, if you form an LLC, that'll be the first step of the code of the secretary of state. Next, you'll need to uh, register an employer identification number. And that's just a unique identifier for your LLC. And then... Like a social security number. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, That's the best way to think of it. Yeah. And then what you're going to want it you're going to need to tell the IRS what you want your LLC taxed as and if you don't tell them anything you default to being a sole proprietorship and putting it on your schedule C which is a business income and loss for self employment on your personal return or if you have two or more partners even if they're spouses you're going to file that that's a partnership in the uh IRS's eyes cuz again they don't recognize it they It's an LLC. You tell us you didn't tell us it's a business with two people. That's a partnership for us. Now, I might stop. I'm going to mention the other two, but as I, the further we get into things and the more the tax law evolves, it's becoming less advantageous to be a C corp or an S corp. They might sound great on the surface, but a lot of the tax advantages, especially for medical practitioners who typically have the comparative salaries are fairly high. A lot of the advantages of the S-corp can't be had. So it's an unnecessary complication. Now, if you're another part of it, line of business, it's still there's still some what we call self-employment tax arbitrage that you can do there. But that, specifically for medical practitioners, again, you can run the gamut through these. You're probably going to be best off as a partnership or sole proprietorship with very few exceptions for tax purposes, unless you're doing something beyond just a general practice facing the public. So, but we'll speak about it quickly because there's an election you make with the IRS, usually the first year you're filing a tax return. If you can do it in a premeditated fashion, that's what they prefer. Most people don't do it until after the first year they realize, Oh, I have a lot of tax liability here. I was not expecting, what can we do about it? You have to file, it's called Form 8832, and it's basically where you tell the IRS, hey, IRS, my LLC, it's a corporation for tax purposes. And the IRS will be like, great, file a corporate tax return with the CIN. And then if you want to do an S-Corp, which is the typical small business jump, you have to file a second election. Once once they recognize a corporation, there's a second election to make that corporation an S-Corporation. And that's Form 2553. Um, Some people just jump to 2553 and forget to do the corporate election if they have an LLC. But it all circles back to if you're just out of the gate and you don't want to think about this, just form an LLC. You'll get some, you should get, even though professionally you might not get perfect liability protection, It's the typical way that lawyers will set things up so you get some sort of liability protection so long as you run your business through the LLC. There's a couple that you do need to set up a separate bank account for your business. And to do that, you'll need these two elements, the Secretary of State Registration and the EIN. So that's the genesis for most people of their businesses. Let's get some segregation. And this is a stepping back again. You'd need to separate your finances between your personal finances and your business finances. Um, this is just critical for anybody from the outside looking at it. Is are you running a business? Or are you just a person doing whatever you want? And courts will cut through that very quickly if you don't have your finances uh, separate, segregated.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. And a lot of this does come down to when you're setting up your business—is setting this up right the first time and having that mindset in place of this is me and this is my business. This is my money. This is my business's money. Because for one thing, it's just easier. And the second is just like you said, is like, if you were to be audited, they're going to say, when are you acting like your business? And when are you acting like yourself? Because we're confused. And if they're confused, it's probably going to cost you something.
1: Yeah. If, you, if they're confused, then it's, yeah, it's not good for you. So you're to have to have things clear. A couple of things you want to do first, before you get to this point, you'll hopefully have done some business planning. And what you'll want to do is basically say, okay, I'm stepping out on my own. How do I make money? Who pays me? How much, How? Do, what do I get paid for? What activity do I do to get paid? And then what are my, what most people call overhead or supporting costs for that activity, which might be an office, might be software, might be administrative support, might be professional support. You're going to have to form a business model and do some business planning and make sure that your plan will work that you're ready to either yourself or have someone do on your behalf the services needed to generate the revenue needed to not only pay your overhead costs but also to provide the return provide your salary provide what you expect to make out of the business and the only way you're going to know if your business plan is working is by having some solid accounting in place. And the accounting has a few elements for the base level for IRS purposes is you just need you there. If you get audited, they're gonna come in and say, All right, what where's your bank? Where are your bank statements? Here are the deposits. Show me where these deposits go on your tax return or your business's tax return. And then beyond that, you have to prove that your expenses were a any expenses you claimed as deductions were either A, reasonable and B, necessary for you to do your revenue generating activity. That reasonable and necessary is a very, I think it's more and more important because there's a pretty broad range of what can be reasonable and necessary depending on what business you're in. But in any case, you're going to have to substantiate that expense. And the only way you do that is through a, a good accounting. And by accounting, we mean bank reconciliations done in a visible accounting system. Most people use a uh, QuickBooks Online. And that's probably the minimum I would recommend. There's a free one called Wave Apps that if you have a simple business and you it, it's just not quite as fluid. The Wave Apps is not that it it's not quite it's free, but it's not quite as nice as a QuickBooks Online. And also the accounting community who will you'll likely be reaching out to support works all quite a bit in it QuickBooks Online. Most practitioners will. So it'll facilitate you finding an accountant to help with these things.
0: I think this is a really good place to stop and make sure that people understand the difference in how you get paid and just in general, like how your money flows. So if you're a W-2 employee, you work a certain number of hours or a salary and you get an amount of money and then the government takes some taxes out of it and that is what you get. And there's only a certain number of deductions that you can do from that. So you basically can't leverage a lot of things you do against your income that you're making. So your take home is going to be what you make minus your expenses, including tax or expenses meaning specifically taxes, maybe some IRA stuff, things like that, and, or 401k. And then that's what you get. And that's about it. Now, the difference between that and someone that has an LLC is that the way you get paid is you have income, then you minus your expenses, then you're taxed. Is that kind of like a basic idea? Yeah,
1: no, that, that's absolutely correct. And this, in a way, is one of the things that softens the blow of maybe not making as much money. And the reason of maybe not making as much money the first few years, you do get a tax advantage of the, out of this if you are running your own business. Whether or not your business is related to your profession, is beside the point. Say you want to sell something on an online platform, you're using your abilities to do that. Everything you do that's trying to generate revenue, you can put whether or not you have a business. So that's going to go on your Schedule C. But the big difference into how you flipping into how you get paid, if you're a W 2 employee, your taxes for the most part are covered for you or co- contemplated, hopefully, in your tax withholding. Your employer's paying one half of your Social Security and Medicare tax, and you're getting withheld the other part. But once you do it on your own, you're going to pay a whole 15.3% or so of that. Your, withheld out of your salary is typically six point seven point six five percent And then your state, if you have state income tax where you are and your federal income tax, hopefully will be withheld against that. So when you get that W-2 form, you're going to put it in the tax software. You're going to get some limited deductions, like you're thinking, Amy. And the, the standard deduction is so high now that I think we've been doing some CP lately. I think it's something like 90% of people take the standard deduction at this point, uh, especially if, if you have low interest on your mortgage. And then if you have a high state income tax, that's been capped at $10,000 for years, which is really frustrating for people in, Higher tax states, so that throws most people under that. If you get a W two, if you have your own business, you can control some of that. So this is one thing you get is uh, a certain level of control. So instead of your employer paying you via W two, you're getting paid directly by customers. And those however you set up those relationships, you're going to deposit money into your business bank account, and you've got to pay your expenses. But what comes out on the other end should be what your net income is now i recommend when people start set about 30 to 40 percent of that aside depending on where you live because that's going to go to some sort of tax whether or not you decide your tax structure is great but as your net income what you take and what you're hopefully set up some sort of draw system to where okay i'm taking out this much money to pay myself i wouldn't set up payroll for yourself right away for a few reasons, but in, unless you're in a corporate structure, you have to. But you you don't want to set up payroll for yourself. You may need to for employees. You'll pro- you will need to if you have employees who you're paying via payroll. There's a whole other side we could get into, whether to have employees or contractors working for you as a small business person. But that's We'll leave that subject for another time (laughs)
0: for
1: other people I completely
0: agree with you. I think the biggest mistake that we make is still thinking like W-2 employees when you start a business. And the two most common things that I see is one is that you forget about taxes because we think, oh, I got this money. And we think that's the end result, like we get in our paycheck, but we forget that the taxes are automatically taken out. So if you're not setting aside that amount for taxes, you are going to be in a big shock at the end of the year if you're doing really well in your business and substantially- High because we really just don't think about the amount that we're taxed. And the second is not considering all the things that could be used to decrease your taxable income, like all the expenses. What are the main classes that people can use to deduct from their business that especially those things that you haven't really thought much about?
1: Obviously, reasonable and necessary are the two criteria. But if you want a good classification, just Google a Schedule C on your 1040. That will give you the middle section of the Schedule C form. Gives you this for the most part. This is what all the tax forms are going to have it's advertising, promotion, supplies, office expenses, where you can stuff a lot of things, uh, dues and subscriptions. Then there's a line at the end that says other, and other is anything you can't adequately describe that will flow to another schedule where you're like, say, you want to say medical supplies or you not just call it supplies. I, I encourage people to try and fit it into the one of the categories that the IRS has laid out it's just less room for scrutiny but you'll have repairs and maintenance rent they just they're just trying to broadly classify these things and chances are 90% of your expenses are going to fit into something there and if you don't know now, the other thing, this aside, but you're going to have gross revenue, and the one sin from the IRS is the, the biggest sin from the IRS's perspective is underreporting your revenue. It's absolutely critical that every dollar you earn, that minimally comes into your bank account, and some of that sometimes that'll be a net of some other revenue concept. So you're going to want to put every dollar you earn as gross revenue on this. I'll stick with the Schedule C form as the example, but it's uniform across all of it. The tax forms for an operating business. And then you'll have cost of goods sold. And then cost of goods sold is this broad, constitutionally protected category of um expenditures that it's literally I'm buying this from somebody else to sell to my customers. And that, that so you're there's two concepts of revenue. The first is gross, which is every dollar that hits your bank account. The second is net revenue, which is that gross revenue less what we call cost of goods sold, or just things you bought to sell to other people, or in some cases, services you contract to provide to other people. And you're just, you're taking a margin on that. It, But it's broad and it's constitutionally protected. If you can justify things into cost of goods sold, typically that's a little better, a little more understandable through the IRS's lens. The The middle category, which is what most people look at and talking about deductions, again, it's Starting with advertising, rent, meals and entertainment is a whole other thing. You want to a lot of systems still call it meals and entertainment. They did away with entertainment. You can't write off season tickets to whatever sports team you have. It's down to meals at this point. So a lot of people just moved entertainment into advertising or promotion. That's a kind of a trick they've used to get around that. We'll see how it holds up. The IRS hasn't been doing a lot of audits lately. but yeah, you'll want to fit your other expenses in one of these other general deduction categories. And it, from the IRS's eyes, they're granting you deductions. So that's it's an important distinction, what you consider cost of goods sold in your business and what you consider deductions. But cost of goods sold is a little more sacred in terms of you're deducting this because this is an obvious business cost. The others are their support costs. They support your business. They need to be reasonable and necessary. So those are the broad categories.
0: Would that be like if you had, I don't know, like a plastic surgeon and the cost of a good soul would be like I buy Botox, but then I sell it for this amount. And I need someone absolutely. to help inject that. So it's like a 1099 employee, that kind of thing, or 1099 contractor or something like that. Is that something along those lines?
1: Yeah, absolutely. All those expenses are business expenses and depending on your Relationship with the, the, the permits at 1099 and have it under your cost of goods, cost of labor is what they call it. Or you can, there's also a line down below in the middle section of again, the Schedule C is what I always refer to that various tax forms call them slightly different things, but will be outside contractors or contracted services. uh You might put them down there. And then there's obviously a, a line down below for wages and then. Taxes, when people think of taxes, there are a lot of taxes that are operating costs of the business. Payroll taxes are the biggest one. If you're paying employees via W-2 in your business, you're going to deduct all those taxes that you're paying. Now, the taxes that you pay, this 30% you set aside on from your net profits of the business are not deductible as a business expense. They're the actual, be almost by definition, but it's A point worth clarifying, because inevitably somebody will come back and say, I paid my 2022 taxes in 2023. For 2023, I paid 30,000 taxes. Why aren't you deducting it? That was on the income. That's not, it's like a derivative. It's the derivative of your net income. It's not used to recalculate your net income. Now you're going to deduct your federal taxes for state tax purposes in a lot of cases, and vice versa, you're going to deduct what you pay the state for federal But the actual federal tax is not a federal tax deduction. Same way with the state income tax. But yes, back to your original question, those are all, those would be great examples of what could go into cost of goods sold.
0: And let's talk about people working for you. So I know that if you had someone just doing something like, I don't know, cleaning your office or something like that, that would be like a 1099 employee. And it's important because keeping in mind that the government just wants to get paid for people getting income. So if someone cleans our office and we pay them money, they are a 1099 contractor for us. And we have to report that if it's or more than, is it 600 a year or something like that? Otherwise we're in pretty big trouble, correct?
1: And what you should do, is just as a good business practice, is you should get a, a Form W-9 for every vendor, if if possible, every single vendor that you're unsure of, because you don't know people's business structure. You can't presume people's business structures. The W-9 form it tells them, I'm the cleaning person. I'm coming here to say, great. And really, you really need to get that form before you pay people. That's your one golden chance to get that form is when somebody wants money. You need that form because that's them declaring, hey, yeah, this is my name. for This is how the IRS has me listed. This is the tax structure the IRS has me listed under. And this is my address and EIN or social security number or ITIN, with individual tax identification number, which if somebody doesn't have legal status, in the United States, or doesn't have a, and it's more and more common. So it's it looks like a social security number, but you'll want to do a double check, especially before hiring somebody. You'll want to have them go through that. It's a form called I-9, which is basically what we all fill out when we work for somebody else saying, I have the legal right to work in the United States. So you'll want to get that form. So I'm kind of going two directions. So we'll stick with the independent contractor. Get the W-9 form. And if they're a sole proprietorship, some companies just send them out regardless. If somebody's a corporation or a nest corporation, you don't need to send them a 1099 form no matter how much you pay them. That's just the the rule. But you need that representation from them and you get that on a W-9 form. Now, if you do pay them over $600 during the year, at the end of the year, if they represented that they're a... Partnership, sole proprietor, you need to send them a 1099 form. And there's the system we use, is called tax1099.com. There's a bunch of great online systems that'll e file with the IRS, hopefully e file with your state if you need to separately, and we'll mail the form and email the form to the person. The reason you need to file that form 1099 if you paid over 600 is so you can take it as a tax deduction. If the IRS ever challenges you, say you've paid your cleaning. Service twelve thousand dollars this year. If you didn't, if you, and you put that on your tax return, if you get audited, and they say, "Oh, hey, I see it's John's cleaning service. You've written checks to. That's great. Did you send a ten ninety nine to John's cleaning service?" And if you can't say that with certainty, or you don't, you'd say, "Yeah, I have the ten ninety nine right here. I sent it. No questions asked. It's done." If not, then you open up a can of worms and this is something that could happen. So you want to clearly define these relationships, especially where people could perceive themselves as employees, because the IRS is going to take their word above yours in most cases that say the cleaning service, you're the only office they clean. You're the only, they don't serve other clients. There's a good chance that they might, and they don't bring their own supplies. You buy the supplies, they work. There's a lot of factors that could feed into them being reclassified as an employee, especially if they get the 1099, they realize we're talking about on our side, you're going to owe 15% of um, self-employment tax on that as opposed to having the employer take care of it. That's what sets a lot of people sideways if that if there's not a clear understanding up front and you're not meeting the IRS definition of they're truly an independent business, then they'll complain it's going to take their word for it and they're going to charge you for the taxes they should have paid. So it's a nasty outcome. So you'll want to at the outset of these vendor relationships, you'll want to get a W-9. You'll again probably want to work with a lawyer, just have a general services contract that they'll sign for you or read their general service. If they send you a contract, that's also help support that, hey, they're in their own business. They're probably not an employee. But again, it's the beauty of tax. And the difficult part of it is there's some things you can just that are black and white you can document away. But with, if things get litigated, the IRS is going to go to the core of the economic transaction. They're they're going to wipe away anything you've tried to paper over. They're just going to say what actually happened here. You do have to be careful to with these vendor relationships and clarify employment or contractor. That's we got into that a little bit, but it's very important.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree. And if you really think of the basics of it, is that the government just wants to say if you make something then we want our tax portion of this. And we will reward you for certain things if to help your business run. So a lot of these annoyances are really can be potentially rewards with these deductions, just like you said. And when we have people work for us, if we're a business, we, we have some responsibility for the people that work with us. And if they're another business and they're just doing us a favor and we pay them money, then it makes sense that we don't need to take a lot of ownership of them because they're on their own. But if we're employing someone, things like the payroll taxes, unemployment, all these other extra things that come along with being an employee is the business's responsibility to do that. So it's important for us to recognize the the differences between the two, that there is some ethical obligation that the government holds us responsible for if we are taking responsibility for someone. So this is shifting from being an employee to being an employer is understanding the difference, if I were to summarize all that.
1: No, that's great. And really, it, what, what we'd say if there's doubt, just have a payroll set up, just put someone on payroll. There's going to be very little harm in putting someone on payroll. You, you're going to, have to pay a little more in employment tax or whatever. And also, if you put somebody on payroll, you will want to renegotiate their rate because now as the concept of them being a contractor is part of why you're paying them maybe more than you would pay someone in-house is because they're taking care of their own taxes, they're taking care of their own insurance. Uh, this bleeds into workers' comp insurance. You could potentially be responsible for insuring your independent contractors if they don't have their own workers' comp insurance. That's going to come at you from your workers' comp carrier. So you want to be careful there. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, when in doubt, just put them on W-2. That is the safe harbor on a lot of things.
0: And this is especially true for, let's say, for example, doctors that are doing locums, tenems. So we are not employed by the hospital, but we come and help them out and fill in a gap. So we're going to be a 1099 and we get paid more because they don't have to cover a lot of these things that employees, you know, have rights for. So it's really important to realize that's why we get paid more for locums. It's because that it's essentially, they're not taking responsibility for us as employees. So they're just going to like paying us as someone who's helping them out.
1: Exactly. Yep, exactly. that's, yeah. So you see it from that lens. It's think, a lot of this is thinking that way for the people that are working for you. And so I'm going to jump really quick to just the good side of all this because tax compliance is it's hard. But when you're starting a business, a lot of times what you'll do, depending on when you start in the year, if you're coming from a W-2, you're going to have some expenditures and outlays and some lag time while you're building up business. Maybe not. Maybe you're jumping into where you're going to generate just as you did as an employee or more money, which is great, but you're gonna have some, your expenses that you generate on a Schedule C offset your wage income. So that's an indirect subsidy you'll get because it should take your tax bill down. The expenditures you're making out of your personal fund, out of the wages you've earned, you get to deduct those. Now, say you're starting from zero, and your borrowed money, like you had to, you took an SBA loan. Sometimes some starting a clinical started to take an SBA loan. It's important to note on the loan side, the money you get in from the loan, when they disperse the loan to you, that's not income because it's due back to them. Now, the flip side of that is as you pay that loan back, that's not a business expense. The principal part, and that'll trip certain people up that hey i'm spending this i'm paying back this business loan why can't i expense it you can expense the interest portion of it the interest portion is a new expense that didn't exist you're paying to but supporting your business but the principal part you've got to pay back out of after tax dollars so that's one thing especially if you're going to take on financing to open a business that you'll want to consider because that you're going to pay out $1000 back in principal Whereas normally a business expense, you're gonna save now when you're deducting things for business, think the way I said, set aside 30%. If you're spending that money, 30% of that expenditure is gonna help you reduce taxes for lack of a better term. If you have a tax obligation, 30% of that is gonna reduce what you owe. You're gonna take, say it's $1,000, that's, you can consider that maybe a $300 tax savings as if you hadn't spent that money on that business expense.
0: yeah. It's like the money's there to help us out. And the only thing that really is an expense for our business is the amount it takes to get said money.
1: Yes, exactly. Yep. Perfect. It's, that's a big area that, especially if you're taking out a big loan, you'll want to account for that. I'm going to have to pay hundred percent of this principal back to, this, to the lender, but I'm also going to pay taxes on that money as I earn it. Uh, so that will get people in some sort of a cash crunch at some point if they have a lot of debt obligation on their business.
0: And speaking of tax crunch and the government both getting their money and also helping us out, so we don't get like completely shocked at the end of the year, when should people start thinking about quarterly tax filing? The the way quarterly
1: tax filing, like the the easiest if you can do a monthly accounting, if you can set aside 30% of what you made. And if you don't have withholding or any other sort, there's four dates you need to pay it in by. You need to pay it in by your first estimate is due on April 15th, same day as your the balance of your taxes from last year. You also need to pay the current year estimate of the January through March by April 15th. The next one comes on June 15th. Why? I have no idea, but for some reason, that's just a two-month lag. And then uh, the next one comes September 15th. And so you pay three months after, you're going to pay your third quarter estimate. Again, that's just They just drop that month. But then you get that month back at the end. So your last one for 2023, your last date of pay and estimates is January 15th. Now, I think this year it's actually maybe a little later because of the way the weekends fall. But those are the general due dates. So again, it's April 15th, June 15th, September 15th, and January 15th. And, There's
0: a book called Profit First that even recommends having a separate account just for taxes. So you basically just write a check to that account as if you're paying each month as you go along, because it really can be quite a shock if you're not accounting for it.
1: Right. Yeah. I've seen that. I've, I've not read Profit First, but I've, I've had two or three clients implement that sort of strategy. And they they actually open the bank accounts and it's a lot of transfers, but it, for a lot of people, it's it's a great way to to help really hammer that home. And Also, when you're doing that, you're you're really seeing in real time what you really need to make or what you're really probably taking home, because I think it isn't one element of that. The owner's profit, we set aside your profit that you and your business plan and envision taking you really it. I think it really helps you drive to you're not just trying to keep your bank account above zero. You went into business because you wanted to make more money. You were going to take more risk because you thought there was reward for it. So you want to codify that in your day-to-day operations and that I think that the profit first methodology is a good one especially for someone who maybe is scared of finances or doesn't understand finance as well it's just this is just what you do and you'll see your crunches really quickly you'll see it forces you to manage cash flow pretty tightly which is really important when you're starting a business.
0: And let's think of those people that work for us now. So now we've decided to have employees when should we go for a payroll company? And tell me like, some considerations for that.
1: Yeah, I would probably out of the gate engage a payroll company. The payroll tax is completely separate from income tax. That's a, the one thing. It It's intertwined to some extent, but from a compliance perspective, it's completely separate from income tax. It's the government's main revenue generator. So they're going to go after you quite a bit more aggressively on a payroll tax deficit than than income tax. They'll get aggressive after time, but payroll taxes are the lifeblood of the government. So they will come after you very quickly. And they're very complex. They're very hard to handle on your own. So I would always recommend having a service do it, whatever. It's a commoditized thing right now, and it's worth every penny of it to have someone take that on. What that service is going to do is you're going to put in the hours, how much you want to pay them, and then it'll spit out this net income and the pay stub and all that. And some good solid ones are ADP Square has a really good on their point of sale system. They have a really nice uh, payroll module where employees can type in their hours and that clients have a lot of success with that. QuickBooks Online has a payroll module that you can use and then there's paychecks among others there's a lot of them use them use one because it they'll make sure you're paying those on time those are due in some cases they're due within two or three days of you paying the person that the money that the social security medicare and in in federal tax withholdings and then there's depending on the state you're in there's going to be a myriad of state obligations as well you just want the payroll company doing that you don't want to think of that. And you don't want to take chances with it. And you, if you've got to prioritize payments, pay the, your payroll taxes first. They typically come due the 15th of the following month, but you really need to set those aside. And the payroll system will do this for you. Say you're going to pay someone $5,000, you're The going to put that through. You're probably going to, that, that $5,000 you're paying your employee is going to generate something like it's going to cost the business fifty five hundred because of the employer side of those taxes. So you're going to pay someone five thousand. You're going to the business between what they owe the employee and in payroll taxes is going to go owe oh, fifty five hundred. And so they're that say the employee gets thirty five hundred, and the the balance, the two thousand goes to some government somewhere. As I tell people, and let the employee like the the payroll tax system do that. You do not want to be short on that deposit. So that's one thing that's critical because you can't, just like, as I presume medical malpractice liability, the IRS, they'll come after officers of a company, no matter if you have a corporation, LLC, there's no way to get away from that um, payroll tax liability. And one thing to consider, if you're a signer on a business bank account, you're the person liable for that payroll tax liability. They don't care what name is on that bank. account. There's no way to shield yourself personally from that liability. So you just want to make sure it's paid. It's never behind.
0: And another company to definitely hire if you're going to do medicine is a billing company. And because a lot of these things too complex, and we won't belabor some of those things because I really think it's most important just to recognize there's certain things worth paying for. Payrolls, and billing, because you can do all the work in the world. And if you do not have an effective coder who determines what you get paid or determines how you document this, and a biller who submits it accurately and on time, and uh, also follows up on denials, all that work you've done is for nothing. This is not something that you want to dabble in or do yourself, because you want to work in your zone of genius of you making the money. And then you hire the people. And this is the thing is like when we start a business, if you accept things like a private practice or a side business, you have now become responsible for all the things that happen in your business. You're now the CEO of your business, whether it's small or large. And when you start inviting people into your world, you have to really understand what they're doing and what your responsibility to them is. And when you can offload responsibility when you can't. And a Biller and a Coder, it's a great way to offload some responsibility and to find someone who's reputable. And I know we've had a couple of people on the podcast that are billers. You really want to make sure that someone knows what they're doing, because this is another one of those things that you can get to a lot of trouble. One, not getting paid. That's really annoying. Or two, really get into some trouble with that aspect.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, 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 and this goes for any business where you want to make sure your systems are tight and you understand them, how they're working well. Is your revenue, whatever generates revenue, however you know what you're doing in your mind to generate revenue, but you need to make sure the invoicing, or in this case, billing and coding, it's it's absolutely critical in um the medical arena. It's and part of that is you're gonna wait a long time to get paid. And I as I understand you, you're gonna bill one rate and you're by the time it goes through the grinder on the insurance company or whoever's ultimately paying that bill side, you're gonna get a certain markdown perhaps on they're going to denials. I think maybe is that what you're getting at? Yeah. um, Yeah. So you just, you need to set aside time. I think someone was, you need to set aside time to make sure you understand what's going on the revenue side. Right. Um, It's easy. I think to just, at the end of the day, uh, just say, okay, I've got somebody doing that. And they're taking care of it. Uh, You really want to set up some sort of quality assurance on in On your own, so you understand what's happening, because mm-hmm. it's going to serve as a feedback loop. Like you, if certain things you're doing aren't getting paid for anymore, and some company changes the policy, you're not getting paid. You need to know that immediately and make changes in your practice if possible, because because some of it could be a just torpedo <laughs> a lot of things. So yes. I I don't know in and out, but you do want to outsource this, but you also need to have a, enough of an understanding to keep those people honest and also a dialogue with them to understand what, what might be going wrong because you're delayed getting paid enough. And I'd say the, between 30 and 120 days or depending on who's paying what and how much work yeah. it needs to go through. So you're carrying those costs in the meantime.
0: Um, completely agree. And This is when the CEO mindset comes into play. If you're a WT employee, it's up to the employer to figure out how to collect money. Now, you should care about this because if that business folds and you're an employee, then you're going to be dealing with the consequences of them not managing it well. So one is being aware of it's helpful anyway. But when you become the owner of your business or under practice management company or something like that, you are directly responsible for what's actually happening with that company. If you hire reputable, you're in luck, but I've hired reputable companies and other things and they've gone bankrupt. So you never know, like you really have to know what's going on in your business and you don't have to do everything in your business. That's different. I definitely like when I've reached embracing the idea of CEO of your business, which is I want reports. I want people to tell me what's going on. I don't have to know the details, but every single time I learn a little bit more each time and I get a little bit more knowledgeable. I'm still not doing it, but I'm responsible for it. And that's a big difference.
1: Yeah, there's a cycle. It, back in MBA school, we we did a a bit of a study, but there there's a reason that I guess Hong Kong and Singapore uh used to be incredibly corrupt places. And obviously today they're I don't know, Hong Kong, but Singapore is seen as the best place to do business, really clean, everything's on point. The way the authorities, I guess if you say that the way the authorities cleaned these things up was to not go after the big corrupt people. They they did visible things like no littering, no jaywalking. They made enforcement of laws visible at a street level for everybody to see. And then that had the effect of saying, wow, if they're on top of this, imagine what they're going after on the big corrupt side. So if, as a CEO, your time, you don't have many resources, but you want to know just enough to keep the the experts you've hired honest. So you want to ask certain questions like what? And this is why Pete as an accountant, you'll go crazy like that's five dollars off. Yeah, it's five dollars. I don't care. But if you're as a business owner, if you're asking, hey, why is this thought? This doesn't make sense to me that. From being a tax practitioner and account, that kind of puts us on alert. Hey, great. This person's actually looking at these reports. They want to understand them. And B, it, as a service provider, it makes you better. It, it, it will keep them. And the, the irony is a CEO, you might not know anything about that line item. You, you'll just, all you have to do is notice that it's slightly off and, to, and receive an explanation. But that somehow creating that dynamic kind of raises, I guess, I'd say it raises the level of service you get. You might annoy your service provider a little bit, so you don't want to aggravate them. Yeah. But at the same time, it's just going after little things, even if you don't have to understand the details, the ins and outs, but you, from having a business plan, you'll know where you want to get, you'll know the grand concepts. Um, you can't every day talk about grand concepts, but you can every day be like, well, why is this expense missing? Or I don't see where's this expense or just have a few questions that you can pick out to ask your service provider that show them you're paying attention. You're interested because otherwise, if you don't, everyone just flops along and then your ship might be falling apart. You might not. <laughs> the service provider might not want to tell you or, or even if they're or they might not be aware.
0: Um I completely you know? agree. And I'm under a practice management company and they were actually very kind to meet with us every month when the the things came out. And I'm like, what's this? What's that? And they had to really wrap my head around asking dumb questions and then patting my head and saying, oh gosh, not her again. But after a while I became more knowledgeable and they knew I was checking. And I know yeah. it really helped both our relationship, but my knowledge and them recognizing that this is a practice we're going to have to pay attention to.
1: Yeah. It's how you get attention. And It's yeah, you you might feel like you're being annoying, like you want to be nice, you don't want to be bothering, but I think you have a responsibility to watch your own (laughs) accounts. Basically, I think it's a really important practice. However, you do it, however, you manage to get that. Yeah, make some noise.
0: (laughs) So, when we think of our retirement planning, investment planning, and things like that, what are the advantages of having? your own LLC, things like that? Because I now know that you're taking the responsibility of an employer. So you also get some benefits of having some of your own tax sheltered things. And what can you do as an LLC? And does that compromise what you can do individually? Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Now when you have a great growing business, it's running well, time will go on and you'll want to retire or you want to make sure you hopefully you're doing this for some sort of financial independence. And you have the I guess what i call an exit plan or some sort of way to, when you're not the main service provider, do you want to stay involved? Do you want to, so there's a few facets of this, but the concretely on the tax side, depending on the size of your practice and what you want to do for your employees, you'll have a whole series of questions or thought process between, do you want to offer your employees benefits? Do Do you want retirement plan to be part of that benefit? Because as an individual practitioner, really that question first starts Do I have employees? Because there's a lot of things that you may want to do for yourself. But if you're an employer and you're in a situation where you're getting a W 2 from your business, this again is maybe a reason to step back from these corporation S Corp setups and just have a sole proprietorship LLC or a partnership. But whatever you do as for your employees, especially if you're getting a W-2 from your business, it applies to whatever you want to do for yourself, you have to do for your employees, or you have to set up policies. So this is why, and I, we're talking before, I personally won't work with people with more than 40, 50 employees because there's a, a whole level of complexity that the Affordable Care Act impose, not just the Affordable Care Act, a lot of other acts, but you just get into a big range of complexity that smaller businesses uh, don't need to deal with, but just keep that principle in mind. What you want to do for yourself, you'll also have to do for your employees. Now, if you keep it like your employees separate and you're just a, a partner, you don't get a W-2 from your uh, business, then you have a, a separate set of questions. And it's a question that every every person has. Now, as a, a W-2, you have the option of putting money into a traditional IRA. That's a base level of retirement planning. It's been around for years. And a traditional IRA is where you fund an account, a brokerage account that's designated with a custodian as a traditional IRA. You can put up to seven thousand dollars in. I think a year. There's depending on how close you are to retirement, you can do catch up. But I'll just I'll blanket say seven thousand dollars for now. Do check with an advisor to see how much you can put in. But your your spouse can do the same. So between you, if you're married, you, you can do fourteen thousand. Uh, one seven thousand for them, seven thousand for you, and that's the base of of most tax plan. And you, you, depending on your income, you'll get a tax deduction for that. Now, if you're over a certain income level, I think it's around 150,000 again. I should be looking this up as we go, but just know that there's an income level that you will not be able to deduct that contribution. However, that doesn't mean it's in vain because then they you can do what they call a backdoor Roth conversion because the other typical IRA, again, we're just talking as a W-2 person outside of what your employer might offer, is you can fund a Roth IRA. In a Roth IRA, there's a key distinction between these two accounts. The traditional IRA goes in, you've you've deducted the money you put in against income that year. That's going to grow tax-free. But when you start to take distributions at 59 and a half or older, you you're gonna pay ordinary income tax on those distributions because you didn't pay tax on the money you put in. Now, the Roth works separately, is you're gonna put after tax money in a Roth. There's no deduction. There's some minor tax credits you'll get for if depending on your income range to put money in a Roth, but that money grows what we call tax-free forever. So any dividends, interest, whatever. Now, what's in what those things are invested in is a whole other story. You want to be careful and have a good advisor to help you with that. But it, assuming that grows, you'll never pay tax on that money again. So you you when you take distributions from Roth, they're tax-free. And there's certain things you can do. You can buy a home. So there's certain things you can do before 59 and a half with that money. Now, as a high earning individual, you're likely over the threshold for those two immediate tax benefits the roth threshold is lower than the the traditional one but what so what i advise people to do is just set up both accounts with your and at the end of the year during the year you're going to need to do this you'll fund the traditional ira and then if you're over income to take that deduction you there's no problem funding that traditional ira you just don't get the tax deduction for it but what that gives you since you didn't deduct it is what we call basis in the tax world. And since you have basis in it, that means you didn't deduct it. So when you take if that stayed in the traditional IRA, that basis amount, that 7000 would not be taxed when you took it out. So uh, everything else that it earned would be ordinary income to you when you took it out. That that basis part is not. So what we do, we buy, and it's still legal at this point is you roll that traditional IRA amount that you couldn't deduct into your Roth IRA. And you just call your financial advisor, have them roll those funds in. And then you've made a legitimate Roth contribution, Um, but it has to go through the traditional IRA first. If you're over income, if you put that money directly in a Roth, you're going to pay a penalty on it. So you can't, I would say just put it in the traditional first and then see how your income's coming at the end of the year. And if, you go over and come to deduct that, roll it into your Roth, and you've done the back, what we call the back door. Now, as an LLC owner, on top of those options, you have what's called a SEP IRA. And that's a self employed IRA, it's a separate account you'll set up with the broker. And what you can do is you can only put 7000 into a traditional. You can put up to certain limits of, I think, 25% of your net income into that SEP IRA. I should look that up as I say it, but you can put a, it's dependent on your net income and it's typically quite a bit higher than you can do with your traditional. And it works like a traditional IRA. It's just your contribution limits as a self-employed individual are substantially higher.
0: To pick one or the other, if you do an individual IRA, can you also do a SEP or can you only Mm -hmm. do one?
1: No, you can do both. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's one of the simple. Now there's the by IRA, you can also set up for employees and some people set these up. I get it just in your general practice area. I would typically avoid these. Stru- if you get into corporation structures and S corporation structures, they're great. It's just high earning professions. The corporation there, there's a professional corporation tax rate, which basically takes away the advantage of having earnings in a corporation and there's a, for an S Corp, your reasonable compensation rules, you're going to have to pay yourself anyway, the max for self-employment to get around that or to satisfy the IRS on that. And you're not going to get these tax advantages. You can keep, to some extent, keep what you do for your employees separate for what you do on the personal side. But now if you do go on a payroll, again, you can set things up, with, there's something called a solo 401k that's new and that those limits are quite high about 50,000 so that's something to investigate as well if you have an llc and and you're a sole practitioner which a lot of people do and this is another thing that feeds will feed into your decision to whether to have employees or subcontractors is this benefits i guess I'd call it generally the benefits question but if you have employees typically you've got to do for them what you're doing for yourself on some level so you want to watch out for that now, the other thing you're doing is, as a business owner, a lot of people their house is a primary asset. You're forming a business, and now you'll want to do some, maybe, I guess, exit planning or succession planning as a business owner. If it's just a way to accelerate, get earn more for services you're doing, and you're treating it like a job, that's fine. But you just you'll have the arc, and then you'll work through it. You'll make the extra money and come out. If you're building a practice that you hope to pass on to somebody then these other business structures start to make a little more sense then there's a lot more tax planning but you'll want to think perhaps on some level depending on what you're doing you're creating it your business is an asset that you'll and if you're the main your the services you provide is the main asset you've got to think of how to monetize that at the end or if you want to or how you want to either if nothing else so your clients can continue you to be served, but maybe you get paid for creating that asset.
0: Yeah. And I think it's really helpful to look at the benefits too. So if you're a W-2 employee, you can do the IRA, whether it's traditional or Roth, depending on those, the complexity of that, you could do the IRA and then your business may offer you a 401k option. Now, if you're self employed, you can now offer these to yourself. Now, can you have a, if you were a W-2 employee, but let's say you have an LLC where you do like surgery stuff on the side. So I do locums in an LLC. Can I take advantage of the 401k, my business, like my W2 business and my LLC business, or can you only have one?
1: There's certain limits. You can have two, but you're, you're still going to be subject to the limit. So what some people do is they'll change jobs. They're not Some high earners say in tech, I see it like, They'll max out the 401k in four months. Like the the 401k has a hard limit as employee. Then they'll enroll in the 401k of the next employer. And that employer doesn't know you contributed X amount to, you've already hit your limit prior. So basically what they'll do, they'll take it out, put it in. Then you're going to have to take it out and pay penalties on it. So you'll want to watch these overall limits. So the answer is yes but you've got to keep it within these overall limits. And I I want to say it's 19 to 20,000 or so. Yes, but it's not always practical. You just want to watch those
0: limits. I know we've talked a lot about all these different things. And I know you would agree with me on this. When it comes to both legal setup, get a lawyer. And when it comes to accountant stuff, get an accountant. All of this are guides, helpful thoughts, part of us getting educated more each day but do not take this podcast and make your life decisions based on it. <laughs> right.
1: Yes. Couldn't agree more. Do your own research. It's your life and it's your uh, practice. It's and it's ultimately up to you to make uh, decisions. So, yeah, you always got to gotta make a disclaimer. A, a professional will ask good questions and you'll want to be organized for professionals, obviously, as you hope people clients come to you with some sort of organization or idea of what they want But yes, yeah, do your own research. Don't just watch TikTok videos. Find a local practitioner in your area who knows local law, local tax law, because a lot of this is very localized. And tax is an area of constant change. A lot of it we'll see in headlines, but a lot of it's under the surface and not so obvious. They're starting to sunset a lot of provisions of tax laws that they enacted over the last three to five years. It's constantly changing. And everybody's, once you step out of the W-2 realm, especially, but even people with just W-2s, there's a lot of things you get into with family situations, dependents, that you'll just want to make sure your tax practitioner understands or has a method to gather the information. We call it an organizer in our lingo, but it's a questionnaire. Like you'd have somebody fill out in your office a of, Symptoms or whatever. It, it Ours is like that. It's did you do this year? Did you do that this year? And it at least gets the practitioner thinking. Okay, I need to ask for this form, that form, or I need to dig into what they did here. So yeah, because it's a vast area. You are you're going to be unique, in. You're obviously unique for a number of reasons, but especially for tax, it's a lot less cookie cutter than you would think.
0: So. Now, I think anyone who has listened to this knows that you are obviously knowledgeable and should reach out to you. And I know that the website you have is numbercraft.tax. So who should reach out to you? And I assume that's the best way to, to reach out to you.
1: Yes. Yeah. We have a, I guess we have a wait list, a tax wait list. That's maybe the easiest. There's a contact us page at numbercraft.tax. And yeah, I'd encourage anybody who wants to reach out. we, do a, we'll do a, a brief consultation generally just to, to speak. But we help people. We're we're located in the Portland, Oregon area. Obviously, the Portland Southwest Washington is where most of our clients are. But we're we do work with people across the U.S. If you're generating over five million dollars in revenue, or if you have over fifty employees, we know you're not a good fit. So we'll just say thanks for calling. But elsewhere, but most people are just starting out and need some guidance. And even if you just need Some people just need, are very good at doing their own taxes, have done their own taxes for years, but they're coming up on something, they're selling a home or they have a rental or some event going on where they're not comfortable using like a self-do-it-yourself tool. That's something we like doing. And then also, obviously, the small business owners who we typically help. If you just have some questions starting out or if you want to be the person that just says, I don't want to deal with any of this, just here's what I'm doing, just help get me set up and in the right direction and take care of the taxes. We, we love doing that. Yeah. Just reach out. There's a contact form on the the website or we have a tax prep wait list. No, obviously no guarantee. We we have capacity like everybody issues to think about, but yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And yeah, this is really passionate about helping small businesses and people go through this experience because it's a life-changing experience and hopefully a good one for most people, but yeah, it awakens you on a lot of levels and it's a lot of fun. You get a lot closer to your, your clients, your community. In the best of cases, it draws you closer to the people around you. Um, Yeah. It's just a great way to to, to serve people.
0: I love it. Thank you, David, so much for coming on. I really appreciate all the information you provided and I definitely hope people check out your, your website and, and um, and seek you out because It's really just such valuable information and definitely line up your professionals. I repeat our disclaimer again, hire people for these things. There's certain things that we should do and we should be knowledgeable, but goodness knows there are people there that we could hire who do this for a living, just like you don't want people doing their own surgeries. Thank you so much for coming (laughs) on, David. I really appreciate it. You bet, Amy. My pleasure. Thank you. For more information on the BOSS Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.